kick off the 2013-14 academic year and seminar series. Uh, I am pleased, proud, and honored. I really am happy to uh, be able to introduce Orian Shirihai uh, this morning. Um, I just asked Orian the first time I met him, because I remember when I met him, um, and it turned out to be in 2004, is that right? In uh, Nijmegen, in the Netherlands, at a mitochondrial meeting. And uh, this guy gets up, uh, I, think, I think it was the last day of the meeting, in fact, towards the end, and uh, puts together a talk that knocked me out. I, I can't say it any differently than that. It was terrific. And it was about mitochondrial dynamics and how mitochondria talk to each other or don't talk to each other and how often they do it. And I remember he, the, the talk, title of the talk was Mitochondrial Dating, I think. <laughs> Something like that. And it was great. And so let me just tell you just a couple of things, not many things. Uh, CV's a bit long. Uh, he got his education in Israel at the Technion, three different degrees, one of which is an MD, one of which is a PhD, um, and then was at Tufts, and moved from Tufts uh, maybe three years ago, maybe four years, some, some recent time ago, to uh, BU, where he's Associate Professor of Medicine. And I'll leave it at that. Uh, and he's going to talk to you about the connection between mitochondrial dynamics, and he'll tell you what dynamics means, uh, metabolism, which I think is of interest to this room, and aging, which is of interest to all of us. Right? Oriya. Thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity to present to this uh, uh, crowd. Uh, I have been visiting here a couple of times, and every time I come back from a visit uh, with uh, Eric Schoen, I have to work for 10 years to publish all the ideas that I get from this. So today he didn't set the time for me to talk to him to make sure I'm <laughs> the next 10 years are there for publishing. Um, so I'm going to talk about mitochondria today and, and what we, we, uh, we all know already uh, that mitochondria are not sitting in the cell uh, uh, just uh, uh, making ATP. They're also having some fun. They have a social life. They interact with each other. They go through continuous cycles of uh, fusion and fission. Oh, I hope you can see that uh, pointer. Um, so here, two mitochondria are meeting each other. Maybe we'll say a couple of words about why why they decide to 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 go into a fusion event. They fuse their outer membrane, create an intermediate, and then they fuse the inner membrane can create a longer mitochondria, which is the network of mitochondria. Then within within about a minute or so, they will go to a fusion event, and they would create two daughter mitochondria. And we know that these two daughter mitochondria tend to be disparate. They can tend to be different from each other. And, and in uh, about 80% of the event, you would see that one would be with a higher member potential compared to the other. And this one is six times more likely to go to another fusion event with another mitochondria. With the other daughter mitochondria, is six times less than this one in, in to go into fusion event. But it might recover its member potential. Um, and, and it would go back into a fusion event. 
while if it does not, it would enter what we call the preautophagic pool, where mitochondria are, are, are incapable of fusion with other mitochondria, and they are also depolarized. This is our definition of the preautophagic pool. What we find is that this mitochondria of the preautophagic pool uh, will go into uh, uh, removal by, by autophagy or mitophagy, uh, within, within a few hours. So there is a gap of time where we see some fragmented mitochondria, or, or sorry, a, a non-fusing mitochondrion that is also depolarized, and that creates some level of heterogeneity. And, and of course, um, one, of the, one of the key points in this uh, cycle is, is, in addition to the flux in the, in the fusion and fission, is also the segregation. Because in order to create uh, a, a flux of uh, removal of material from the network, uh, we need both fusion and fission going on. We need the segregation of material so the two different the two daughter mitochondria would be different, and we need also a selectivity, which means that this mitochondrion would be segregated from the network and will not be able to fuse again and, and contaminate the network with its content. So we create by this features of flux, segregation, and selectivity, uh, a, a quality control system that is, that is uh, composed of fusion, fission, and, uh, and mitophagy. And, and one of the uh, key, uh, key points here is the segregation. When we are trying to understand better what, what is the mechanism of segregation, and, and uh, there, there is some uh, uh, evidence that indeed something like that happened, and this is this is coming from, from one of our, our earliest findings, which was that uh, if we inhibit mitochondrial fission, what we see is the accumulation of oxidized protein in the end of the mitochondria. You can see the focus here. This is the oxidized protein. This is specific. This specific slide is about nitrotyrosine, which is which is a form of uh, of uh, a protein uh, oxidation that can that can uh, mean damage. It can also mean signaling, uh, and, and you can see here the accumulation of this oxidized protein in the ends of the mitochondria when we inhibit mitochondrial fission using DRP1 dominant negative. So we, it's a dominant negative form of the fission protein DRP1. And so we wanted to to develop. Uh, additional tools to understand and to be able to visualize, to be able to quantify uh, the segregation of protein into different mitochondria. And, and for that, we have developed uh, a tool which is uh, the, the mitotimer. Uh, this was developed uh, by, by the student uh, Kyle Trudeau, and this was in collaboration also with uh, Roberta Gottlieb. And uh, we have a paper that is coming about it, uh, two papers back-to-back -back, uh, with Roberta Gottlieb about the uh, development of this tool, which is called the mitotimer. The mitotimer is based on a protein that was discovered uh, or developed uh, uh, 13 years ago, which is a fluorescent timer. It's a protein that changes fluorescence uh, from green to red over time. And this uh, change of fluorescence from the time it is synthesized uh, and onward is due to um, a random interaction with molecular oxygen. Not, not reactive oxygen species, but molecular oxygen. And, and uh, the study that developed them, the, the timer protein or, already verified um, various possible 
uh, modifiers that are and clear that, that those are not modifiers, for example, uh, pH or active oxygen species that do not contribute to the change in the color. And we have also verified it in, uh, in, our, in our study. So when we express this timer, what we see, we see that it is made green, then it is going to become yellow because the, some of it is converted to, to red, so now we have yellow, and within uh, two days we see that most of it is becoming, is becoming red. Uh, in general, the matrix timer would be, uh, so a protein that, which is a timer that we send to the matrix with mitochondrial targeting sequence, uh, would be pretty homogeneous because mitochondria go through fusion and fission uh, co continuously. Uh, if we block, uh, if we block mitochondrial uh, turnover, for example, autophagy, then what we would see is the accumulation of the red material. So you see here with buffalomycin, we see an increase with chloroquine, and then with 3MA, they are all resulting in accumulation of the red, uh, the red timer protein that is targeted to the matrix. And if we look at the ratio, you can see here that uh, uh, we induce this protein, the, the protein production with doxycycline. And after 48 hours, we see that the ratio has increased, especially in the uh, ATG5 knockout, which is a, a, a knockout for uh, autophagy. So reduction in uh, protein turnover or in, in general, autophagy, which is also including mitophagy, results in increase in the ratio of red to green. So indeed, this protein is a, is a good tool to look at, uh, at mitochondrial turnover. Uh, and it is, it is also uh, uh, a good tool to, to ask questions about distribution of young and old protein. I'll show you just a couple of slides. So um, indeed, what we see that the matrix timer is relatively... Uh, homogeneous, but if we if we fuse the timer now to one of the subunits of uh, complex one, the one that uh, has been verified to be to be uh, going to the right place and incorporated into the complex uh, by Karine Bush, uh, and instead of putting GFP, which is what she did, we put the timer protein on. So now we can see the old and the young protein. So now we can see that this uh, component of the complex one, which we call the C1 timer, is now generating some mitochondria that are, uh, or particles of mitochondria that are only co containing uh, the old uh, material, which is exactly the tool that we were looking for, a tool to see segregation of mitochondrial uh, uh, protein. Um, and now the, the most interesting uh, result that actually came from looking at, uh, at the matrix timer was when uh, Andrew uh, Ferry in the lab was putting this matrix timer into neurons. And that started telling us another story which is interesting in terms of compartmentalization uh, of, the, uh, of mitochondrial uh, biogenesis. What you can see here is that uh, th these are, uh, these are uh, hippocampal neurons and you can see that if we follow from the soma towards the, uh, towards the neurites, uh, we are going to see uh, uh, more and more red protein. I think that I have a, a ratio image on, which would be um, easier for you to see. Um, so you can see here, this is the ratio image, here over here, and this is the, the, the merge 
uh, image of the green and red. So this is the soma, and these are the neurons. And this is, this is uh, 25 fields of confocal uh, microscope. So this is 100 micron. So it's a very, very long uh, neuron for the microscope. Um, so you can see here that, that you have a mixture of green and red here. And the further you go, uh, the, further, uh, the, more, the more red that you're going to see, you see over here. Uh, that, that you, so you see almost entirely uh, just red mitochondria. And, and indeed, we could quantify that um, by, by looking at the ratio with the distance from the soma. And the further you go, the more uh, old the mitochondrial protein, the more red that you're seeing. So there, there is a compartmentalization in terms of, of biogenesis. Where is the young protein uh, going? And you can see here, if we look at this curve, that shows you the, the further you go, the older the mitochondrial protein is, further you go in the, in the neurite. Uh, so then we created those slopes and we, we, we put the, we bend the slopes and we look at the uh, control versus a neuron that was expressing Miro, the, the Wattac Miro and the constantly active Miro, which is a protein, Miro is a protein that connect mitochondria to microtubule. When, when you connect mitochondria to microtubule, mitochondria move more. And this was the work of uh, Tom Schwartz, I'm sure you heard him here. So uh, when you connect mitochondria to microtubule, they move more. And when you overexpress Miro and you make the mitochondria move more, you can see that the slopes are moving towards here. So uh, when, when we're looking at the control, the slopes are here, which is meaning that uh, more of the old mitochondria are in the end of the neurite, so the slope is strong. And if you are, if you are expressing the, the, the mirror, you're going in this direction, which means that this gradient is being, uh, is being reversed, so you don't see it anymore. If you make mitochondria moving more, the slope of old in the end of the neurite is not being seen uh, anymore. So that means that mitochondrial motility is, is contributing to this uh, 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 organization. Now, now uh, in, in general, what it uh, what it tells us um, uh, is that is that uh, we are probably going to see that with time, uh, and indeed this uh, the result. If you look at the soma versus the neurite, so the in the soma you would see that uh, green mitochondria protein is is constant, and, and red is accumulating with time. Where with the neurite, you see that the green is going down and, and red is accumulating. So that's, that is expected. So with time, we are seeing that the soma is maintaining protein biogenesis and incorporation into mitochondria, where in the neurite, it is going, it is going down. Because once the mitochondria enters the neurite, its chance to get this protein is reduced. So one assumption of this is that the traffic is unidirectional that it only goes toward the end of the neuron, that it doesn't come back, doesn't backflow to the soma. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. So, 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 so of course the question is, is this, is this just compartmentalization? Or, or is this, uh, can we say that, uh, is this compartmentalization just because they're in the neuron, right? Or could we, could we achieve this result just by blocking mitochondrial fusion and then see uh, different population of right. mitochondria. Yeah. So 
So what would happen if we would block mitochondrial fusion, uh, or, or in, in other words, if, we, if we're saying this is, the, this is the timer, so this is the aging of the timer, and one, one axis here is the age, and one is the, the fusion and motility. The more fusion and motility, the more equilibration we get between the younger mitochondria and the older, so to create a yellow. Um, and then the, the aging is, uh, is, uh, is applied to every, everybody. You cannot avoid the time axis. So, so if we are avoiding the equilibration, then we, what we expect is, is a heterogeneous population, like we saw in the neuron. But now the question, can we, if, if we you know, inhibit mitochondrial fusion without actual spatial organization, are we going to get the same, uh, the same thing? And indeed, this is, this is the case. This is the, uh, this is the wild type timer. As you can see, it's very yellow and homogeneous. And this is the red versus green, see how how uh, nice it is uh, the correlation, but if we use it on the mitofusion 2 and 1 double knockout, then you see something that looks more like a Christmas tree, um, or Hanukkah, but it, it doesn't really fit. The mitofusion were blue and white, that would be better, but um, I asked the student to do that and the result was not very good. So, so uh, but you see here how, how, how heterogeneous it is becoming and you can see here some, some really uh, very heterogeneous population uh, of, uh, of mitochondria. Uh, so so uh, what, I, what I say in, in conclusion for the timer protein, it is an it's a very interesting tool, useful tool for us to, to uh, start deciphering and understanding the idea of segregation of mitochondrial material for uh, quality control that, uh, that is uh, beneficial for maintaining uh, functionality of mitochondria. Now, uh, I would like to, to, to now uh, uh, go into uh, the issue of mitochondrial dynamics and, uh, and the nutrient utilization. Would you and to say just a word about how you get the label into these yeah. cells and mitochondria? What's the actual process by which Oh, so, so the timer is a protein, right? It's a, it's a, a derivative of DS-RED. Uh, and what we do is we fuse it with the mitochondrial targeting sequence. And there are, there are many like that, so some of them that are memory potential dependent, some that are not. And, and of course, uh, every of the mitochondria uh, labs, uh, like Eric, uh, has uh, many of them in his drawer. Just choose one, uh, the flavor that you would like. And, and then uh, we put it in a plasmid and we express it in the cell by transfection or another methodology. Um, and any evidence for preferential uptake of this into mitochondria of different generations or age or state relative to your first? Yes, yeah, so we, indeed, the, so the, the protein is made in the cytosol, like 95% like of the mitochondrial uh, proteins, uh, and then it is incorporated to mitochondria. And indeed, um, as you can see from this one, um, you see this red mitochondria over here. This red mitochondria are different from the yellow in that they don't have green. That means that they don't take up new protein. So we have a different, different level of incorporation of new mitochondrial material to different mitochondria, which is, which is of course, uh, raising some very interesting questions about how, how does it really work in the cell? 
Does it, does it usually work that some mitochondria get the material and then they distribute it to the others? And when by fusion event, and if you don't have fusion event, then you get, but once they separated, they, it's, a, it's a goodbye forever. And okay, so this is it. You, you cannot have any new protein, so you go, you go red. Uh, so, which means to the blue again. I like the blue idea. So, okay. So, do you ever reach equilibrium? So, you showed us the time course. Yeah. Do you, does it ever reach equilibrium? It is, uh, so, if you are if you're creating a cell line that is stably expressing it, you're going to be in equilibrium. Uh, if you mean, um, if, you, if you do a transient, of course, you're never in equilibrium because you're generating and then you're losing. If you want, I can show you later how the graphs of the green and the red look when you do doxycycline, acute doxycycline reducible, and then you see red and green, red goes up first, then green follows, then red goes down first, green continues, and then goes down. That's if you do doxycycline. So, so let's ask you a question of uh, what, what is the response of mitochondrial dynamics to metabolic stress? It's something that we are very interested in, especially in our research in, uh, in, in the beta cell and fat cells. And, and there, there are some studies that already show that indeed uh, an, increase, uh, uh, an increased flux in the fusion-fusion cycle is expected to be shown when there is a change in the redox towards more oxidized uh, situation. And this was a work by, by group of Heidi McBride that was looking at the glutathione redox state and was seeing an increased fusion event when, uh, when, when it is more uh, oxidized. So, so our expectation was that in the beta cell, when we expose the beta cell and other cells to a situation of, of excess nutrient environment that was, that was characterized by increased reactive oxygen uh, species, that we are going to see an, an, an extensive level of mitochondrial fusion. But to our surprise, this was not the case. And this was not the case, not just in the beta cell, but many other cells. Uh, we see here, this is in the beta cell, uh, that uh, this is the control, this is excess uh, glucose and fatty acid. Uh, I'm going to show a little more about concentrations. <clears throat> but the more, the more you add glucose or fatty acid, the more likely you are to get into the fermented mitochondria. This is Joseph Vita, another lab in Boston University. Um, is that a question from outside? <laughs> okay. so, um, so, so this is the uh, aortic endothelial cells from, from humans. Uh, you see this is with high, with high level of glucose fermentation. This is uh, from the lab of Ceylon Roy, an ophthalmologist that is doing research on retinal endothelial cells, and we see this with high uh, level of glucose. So, so if we are if we are uh, looking at the, at the at the time course of it, we see that already in four hours we see an increase in fragmentation, and and the more nutrient that we are adding. So, if we if we go with uh, 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 this is palmitate uh, here. And this is the glucose. And the more glucose that we are adding, the more fermentation we're going to see. And of course, uh, if we are taking out the palmitate, very high glucose, we still see uh, lower. If we're going to, to wait a few more hours, we are going to see that the 20 glucose is going to produce the same level of uh, fermentation. So there is... There what is does palmitate alone do? Um, In basal glucose? Yeah. 
Pamitate alone would also do that, and actually all eight would also do that. So that was telling us that, that we're not just talking here about toxicity, but there is something here about, about what nutrients bring into the cell. And, and uh, uh, so, so of course, what, what we had to, to ask ourselves, if, since we are interested also in mitochondrial dynamics here, what is this meaning? What is this fragmented mitochondria? Uh, is this just a change in the, in the structure of the mitochondria, or is this also a change in their level of interaction between mitochondria? And, and, and to do that, we had to ask ourselves, are they, are they interacting more or are they interacting less? And to do that, we had to label an individual mitochondrion and ask whether it talks to another mitochondrion or not. And, and uh, to, to label an individual mitochondrion, we, we developed this approach uh, some time ago, and this is, this is uh, actually how uh, Eric and I met first time. It's very romantic, so, <laughs> so we, were, uh, we label mitochondria uh, with a matrix targeted photoactivatable GFP, and then we use two photon laser to convert this photoactivatable GFP to a fluorescent one. And because it's in the matrix, it is diffusing very fast within the matrix to label the boundaries of this uh, mitochondria. So, so here is a cell. This is a cost cell. It's an art of nature. And you can see now we're going to take a part of the, of the network. And we are going to use the two photon laser to, to photoconvert uh, it over here, and then it will diffuse uh, into, into the network, and within a second, it will already label the part of the network that is continuous. So, so pay attention, because uh, there will be, I'm going to test your, uh, your mito sense um, <laughs> in a minute. So, so uh, uh, Eric, where is Eric? Can you turn down the light? That was exactly just the opposite direction. <laughs> right. Uh, good. So here, so now we're photo converting here, and what we are seeing is that it is it was diffusing over here. So this area is not actually continuous with the rest of the mitochondria. And actually, we know that electrically it's not continuous because we can we can bleach this one by by uh, providing uh, high laser intensity that that, that cause it to polarize. And then we see that this one is not going to depolarize. So now, now it's your chance. Uh, I'm going to photoconvert over here. And, 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 and if you guess right where it's going to go, up here, down here, or down here, uh, Eric is going to buy your dinner. <laughs> and if you guess wrong, so this is if you guess right, Eric buys your dinner. If you guess wrong, there is a bucket outside, you put one dollar each. Um, so this is, this is where it goes. Um, I see most of you were wrong, I can hear that. Um, so so, so uh, what he tells us, is what we see is not necessarily, so touching is not kissing. So mitochondria are, are not necessarily all connected over here. We find that, that in most cases, if we just go with the laser and we hit every mitochondrion, the average is that every mitochondrion is, about, is taking about 1% of the network, the entire mesh over here. Uh, so if we wait long enough time, then we start seeing interesting stuff going on. Um, here, this is, this is what I've done. I 
That's very Mitofly. So, <laughs> so, uh, so, so this mitochondrion uh, is uh, is uh, is now uh, labeled with a photoactivated GFP, and now it is talking to the other mitochondrion and it is saying some nice words like "kebelakrista" uh, or "I like your potential." Uh, and and uh, for those of you that could not. Uh, uh, guess right where it's going to, f where the, in the previous slide, I have a clue here, so where is it going to fuse? <laughs> uh, and what you can see is that after it has been interacting with the other mitochondria successfully, it chose to, to fuse with this one. And now what you see is that they're sharing their GFP, and after that they're going through fission, which is what I showed you before. Based on movies like that, we, we decided that mitochondria go through cycles of fusion and fission. And this is usually the fusion event is happening about one minute after the fusion, and 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 mathematically we show that fusion trigger fusion because fusion always comes in in a with a, prob a probability function after um, sorry fusion always comes with a probability function after fusion. If you know when fusion happened, you can predict when fusion is going to happen. Which means if you know uh, how one of them is happening, probably it contributes to the second to the second event or the, the, the other way as well. So is this protein targeted to the mitochondrial matrix? Yes. Do you, have you targeted proteins to the intramembrane space, and do you see the same sorts of events? Uh, I think my next slide um, is this is, is, no, it's not in my next slide. So the, I will tell you uh, that uh, indeed, uh, we, we put this on the, on the a protein that is targeted to the intramembrane. And what we see is that the dynamics is different. So I told you that during a fusion event, we're, we're going to see the matrix one going to the other mitochondrial within two seconds, or even less than that. Uh, depends on the size, the size of this mitochondrion. But if it, is, if it is bound to the inner membrane protein, then it is going to go very slow and only partially in every event. And the equilibration across the mitochondrial network is going to take much longer time. And talking about uh, equilibration, so let's go back to why we did, why did we develop this tool? We developed this tool to understand if when they're doing the fragmentation because of the nutrient, do they, do they still interact with each other or do they stop interacting with each other? And, and, and this is the next slide. You can see, um, uh, so in, in this slide, that... Uh, what we do here is we photoconvert a group of mitochondria in the cell, and after 55 minutes we see that it is shared across, across most of the mitochondria uh, within, within the cell. Yeah, those mitochondria that don't take it up are the mitochondria that don't fuse, and those are that are in the preautophagic pool. But they are pretty rare mitochondria, because they are being removed constantly. But if we go to the condition where we had uh, uh, excess nutrient environment, uh, and this one this is the most extreme uh, example, what we see is that there is a complete arrest of mitochondrial fusion. You can see we label the mitochondria, they move a little because of motility during this time, 
but they did not share their, their content with the rest of the mitochondrial network, which is what they did in the control. So we quantify that, and we, we know for the different condition also in, in uh, uh, primary beta cells and in INS1 uh, clonal beta cells, in both of them what we see is the excess nutrient environment uh, slows down or prevents uh, mitochondrial uh, interaction. So, so what we, uh, the, the way for us to, to, to conclude it using the scheme that I showed you before is, uh, is that mitochondrial fusion is, it has been arrested and what we have been seeing here is the solitary state which is the mitochondrial uh, fragmentation. So you need for this two events, one is the fission and then arrested mitochondrial fusion that creates the, the fragmented uh, mitochondrial network. So this brings us to the, to the question um, we have seen it in multiple cells, we have seen it in different nutrient environment. Um, uh, we, we, we prefer not using the word toxicity, but to think, to believe that the cell is doing things because it, is, it, is benef it, is, it has been developed because it is beneficial for the cell to deal with the environment. So that raised the question, uh, is there a physiological adaptive role for mitochondrial fragmentation and elongation? that is beyond mitochondrial quality control. Is fission there not just for producing mitochondria that can go through autophagy, but is it also there in order to better deal with the excess nutrient environment that the cell is, uh, is exposed to? Uh, and and uh, uh, the first notion that things like that happen came when we started doing some respirometry with mitochondria. Um, and and uh, this is... a uh, uh, respirometry is oxygen consumption rate for mouse islets, and you can see here that in, in islets, which include beta cells, alpha cells, delta cells, those are the islets of Langerhans, um, they are unique cells that are responding to glucose by increasing oxygen consumption. Uh, so this is glucose coming here, they increase oxygen consumption, and then oligomycin is blocking it. What does it mean? It means that this is the basal respiration, and when we are blocking ATP synthase, what we are seeing is respiration or oxygen consumption that is not linked to ATP synthesis. Therefore, it is it, what we, we name it, uh, the, the leak. It's a, it's a, with some consideration, it, it is a, there is a little bit of exaggeration of the leak here because of the increased mineral potential. And this is the FCCP, which is the maximal oxygen consumption. Uh, usually in the beta cell, it's pretty problematic for reasons I can explain later. Uh, and then we finish with uh, rotenone mixotazole mix, which is preventing any mitochondrial oxygen consumption. And I'll, I'll, I'll jump over some slides from most of the important ones. So what I said before is that we can, we can look at the mitochondrial uh, proton leak by looking at how much respiration, how much oxygen consumption is there when we apply an ATP synthase blocker. So we block ATP synthesis and we still see oxygen consumption. That means that oxygen consumption is, is coming to, to support uh, 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 proton, proton leak. So now we, are, we have a measure of the proton leak. And what we find is that we, we went back into the same condition I showed you, the level of fragmentation. Just to remind you, the pre-fire the pre thing, uh, the level of, uh, where is it? Oh, here it is. The level of fragmentation that we got in the different nutrient environment. 
And now we're going to go and ask in this in this condition. Sorry again. Um, in this uh, in this condition, what are the, what is the level of the proton leak? And we are seeing that there is an increased proton leak the more nutrients that we are adding to to these uh, to these islets. So there is an interesting uh, effect here. That uh, why, why is this proton leak? So what proton leak is? Proton leak is is a way, a way to waste uh, energy. Uh, some cells do it for for fun, and some cells do it as professional uh, uh, leak, which is the the blood, the deposites, which we will mention soon. And 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 uh, so, <clears throat> why would a beta cell do a proton leak? And one of the possibilities that has always been considered is that uh, the the way for the beta cell to do a proton leak, or the reason for the beta cell to do a proton leak is the same reason for us to go on a treadmill, to waste energy. Why? Because usually we balance this energy supply with the energy demand, and we have a good efficiency, little leak, so we don't waste much. But if we are adding now uh, excessive nutrient supply, <coughs> energy supply, and the energy demand has not changed, we are, we are at a problem that we are not in balance and the beta cell is going to receive a lot of energy not actually use it. Now the beta cell cannot go on a treadmill. What it can do, it can add some inefficiency, some waste. And not only the beta cell does it, other cells do it too, uh, including uh, 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 muscle cells. The mechanism is still, is still in work. Now, now, the interesting thing came when, when Lindsay, which was a student in the lab, she made this graph. She said, let's put the leak here, and let's put the, the, the amount of fragmentation that I showed you in the previous slide here. And now let's look at them into, uh, under the different nutrients, and you see the nice correlation. So this was a kind of aha moment, uh, saying, hmm, well, we, we have some interesting uh, uh, correlation uh, going, uh, going on. And, and of course, this, is, this brought us to immediately to ask the question, how general is this? How general is this uh, uh, phenomenon? And, and does the relationship between energy efficiency and mitochondrial architecture hold uh, in conditions that require increased uh, 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 energy uh, efficiency? So, so how do you consider this in terms of when you do your literature search? Um, one uh, way to do it is to say this is the energy demand and this is the energy supply. So now we are dividing into four quarters. So when energy demand is very low and energy supply is low, is that me on a diet? Right? It's me sitting on a chair not eating anything. That's a theoretical experiment we didn't do yet. <laughs> then another one is, 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 is high energy uh, demand which means uh, I'm also, uh, go I'm going to the gym, but then uh, at the gym in Boston, there is, of course, uh, there is a restaurant inside. I'm sure here too. So this is me, me in the gym. And while there is a restaurant and there is a gym, I never visited. But, so it's also an experiment on the list. And now this is the, the just five. So now we can ask the question, is there a correlation uh, that would place the conditions that have high, uh, energy, high energy supply and low energy demand. So this quarter here, are those, are those going to be characterized by more fragmentation? Are those going to be characterized by more elongation? And, and this one, of course, this is the 
So this is the, 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 we expect here low energy efficiency, increased proton leak. This one is decreased proton leak. This, this is something that we already know. And indeed, what we, what we know from the literature, those are characterized by mitochondrial fragmentation and decreased coupling efficiency in terms of mitochondrial respiration and those by elongation. So there is a correlation between the two in the literature. And, and uh, of course, that raises the question, uh, do, can we identify if, if there is a correlation like that? And we think that the beta cell can waste energy by, by, uh, by leak. Can we enhance the leak in the beta cell if we do fragmentation? So can we find a mechanism that causes the fragmentation that we saw in the beta cell under excess nutrient environment? And, and indeed we found, and perhaps I, uh, I'll jump over it pretty fast, I'll say that we found that it is mitofusing to reduction, degradation of the protein, it's not reduction in transcription, but degradation of the protein that result in fragmentation under rich nutrient environment, and we knocked out mitofusing 2 in the beta cell, and indeed cause, it caused fragmentation by itself, and you see that the heterogeneating membrane potential, this is TMRE and GFP, so you see different membrane potential, this is the control, so reduction in mitofusing 2 is sufficient to cause fragmentation, and indeed, under this condition, with reduced mitofusing 2, you see increased proton leak. And because there is increased proton leak, it has to come, the energy has to come from somewhere, so it comes from increased beta, beta oxidation, because, because beta cells live mostly on fat. That's what they eat. They use the glucose to do some signaling, but they, they eat fat. Um, so the interesting thing is that of course, this is, this is providing the beta cell not only a way to reduce the nutrient because it's consuming, but also to, a way to reduce a reactive oxygen species when we remove uh, mitofusin 2. And in, this is an, in a uh, kind of uh, very in vitro model of, of, of diabetes, which is INS1, the insulinoma cells, uh, in high nutrient environment, which cause them to, to fragment, and then it causes them also within uh, 24 hours to 48 hours to also start cell death. And, and if, you over, if you knock down mitofusin 2, there is less ROS and there is less uh, cell death. And the other feature that it brings up, <coughs> it brings up a condition in which at basal glucose, so at low glucose, this is 3 millimolar glucose, when you remove mitofusin 2, you see an interesting phenomenon, which is that uh, uh, fat starts to be a signal for insulin secretion, even at low glucose. And of course, this is, this is a, an interesting phenomenon in terms of the beta cell, because in the, the, we know that there is hyperinsulinemia early on in the obese state, and that, of course, raised the question, could it be that the obese state that has higher access to fatty acid in the beta cell creates hyperinsulinemia because the fatty acid stimulates glucose secretion, sorry, insulin secretion, even in the absence of stimulating glucose. So could it be that the excess nutrient environment is inducing a, a, a mechanism to, to create leak, so, uh, uh, protect the beta cell using this leak by removing the nutrient and removing the ROS, but the, the toll, the payment, is that there is a high basal uh, insulin secretion because of sensitivity to fatty acid. And sorry for if this was, uh, this was too, too, too harsh for non-beta cell people, but consider yourself lucky. <laughs> uh, so, 
So, uh, so this brings us to the question that is there, is there a physiological adaptive role for the mitochondrial fragmentation and elongation? So we, I just suggested the possibility that the fragmentation is enhancing the protolic uh, and, and enhancing uh, uh, nutrient utilization and removal. So that raised the question, is, is, is fragmentation allowing us to do a switch from here to here? So from high energy efficiency to low energy efficiency, is, 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 this, is this a rule that we can, or a connection that is a functional connection that we can prove? Can we find a system that moves really fast, within minutes, from high energy efficiency to low energy efficiency, meaning from low leak to very high proton leak, and see whether it is engaging in fragmentation, and whether this fragmentation is important in the transition in the efficiency? So to ask the question, if the architecture is playing a role in the function or the biologic function of the mitochondria, going from, from efficient to non-efficient. So what, what would be a system that would allow us to switch like that and say, become inefficient? Who, which is the cell that is the most uh, 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 professional inefficient? And this is the brown adipocyte. The brown adipocyte is, is, is the most efficient in being inefficient. The brown adipocyte is receiving norepinephrine adrenergic stimulation <coughs> through uh, um, cyclic AMP signaling. Uh, it is activating lipolysis and it is activating the release of fatty acids that go to mitochondria and activate UCP1, uncoupling protein 1, and creating a, a strong proton leak depolarization and uh, waste of energy that creates heat. So the brown adipocyte could be a really interesting system in which we can test this hypothesis. If we stimulate the brown adipocyte and increase leak, decrease energy efficiency, do we see fragmentation? And so this is how the brown adipocyte look like. Those are lipid droplets. And mitochondria that are dancing samba around them. And, and it's a very, it's a really beautiful cell. Those are primary brown adipocytes that uh, are differentiated in culture. So that we harvest them from the brown adipose tissue. Um, and and uh, this is the, the result you see here. This is the 3D reconstruction. Um, those are the lipid droplets. That might be here the nucleus. You see here a few lipid droplets. <coughs> and then four minutes after activation using adrenergic stimulation, we get a complete fragmentation of the mitochondrial network. This is, this is the only uh, so far known hormone-induced induction of mitochondrial fragmentation. And during this time, this is the sufficient time for the brown adipocyte to do its full transition to energy, uh, energy expenditure. Uh, of, course, of course, this is, uh, this is raising uh, a lot of interesting, uh, interesting questions. The first one, does it happen in vivo? And, and indeed, we know that this is happening in vivo. Yeah, this is all different kind of staining. I don't think you can see this one very well, but look at here. The elongated mitochondria with the very large liquid droplet in the warm acclimated mouse. This is a mouse sitting on the beach in Hawaii, <laughs> having fun. This mouse is uh, having a large lipid droplet. It doesn't have to spend my, much energy. It doesn't want to heat itself any more than it's already being heat. Um, but when you take this mouse, you transfer it to Boston uh, during the winter, this mouse immediately starts writing grunts and also <laughs> in order to get the position in Hawaii. And, and 
uh, it's fragmenting its mitochondria. Very low fragmentation. You can see this is Tom 20 staining. You see this mitochondria here. Look at this elongated mitochondria before. Look at this kind of uh, 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 sausages, kind of uh, Italian sausages, or maybe it's German, I don't know. But it is, it is, it is switched to, into these uh, uh, Swedish meatballs uh, around the liquid uh, droplet. And all of this is happening very fast. And so it is also happening, uh, happening in vivo. If you look in electron microscopy, you can see really fascinating lots of mitochondria. Those are liquid drop. What is that? Did you pass the test? <laughs> so these are the liquid droplets in white, and then all the mitochondria, and the nucleus is in the middle. Um, so, so uh, this uh, I'll pass this uh, slide. Uh, but one of course, one question, of course, is if the if the brown adipocyte fragmenting its mitochondria because it is going through depolarization, or it's fragmenting its mitochondria and then it helps depolarization. So is fragmentation enhance uh, uh, the leak, or is the leak cause the fragmentation in the brown adipocyte? So there are multiple ways to think about it. One of them is to prevent the the, the depolarization by preventing lipolysis. You can prevent lipolysis using uh, lipase inhibitor, uh, like, uh, like here with Orlistat. So with Orlistat, the, the brown adipocyte did not depolarize, but it's still fragmented. And so this is before stimulation, after stimulation, you see, uh, you see the, the fragmentation. Um, you don't see the color very well, but this is TMRE color. Uh, and you can see that with Orlistat, <clears throat> there is no depolarization. So, so this is the elongated mitochondria before. This is the fragmented after. But what you can see actually that it's more reddish. Why? Because it took more uh, memory potential dye, so it is more uh, reddish. So it actually went through hyperpolarization instead of depolarization, but it's still fragmented. So the fragmentation is not due to, to the depolarization. It is coming in a different way. It is coming because what we see is activation of DRP1, the molecule that creates a belt around mitochondria to make the fission event happen. You can see the DRP1 on the, on the tips of the mitochondria after activation with norepinephrine. And, and this, is, uh, this is how it works. We find that uh, the cyclic AMP that is coming due to the activation with norepinephrine is responsible for the activation of DRP1, which is the ubiquitous isoform, the isoform 3, which is in the, in the uh, brown adipocyte. This is, this is the opposite of the brain isoform that is deactivated by PKA. In, in the brown adipocyte, the PKA is activating um, uh, mitochondrial fission because it is activating DRP1. I'll skip, I'll skip all of this and I will go to, to the main finding, the most interesting finding and, and this is to, to go to the question, if we prevent this fragmentation, or we enhance this fragmentation, is this going to change the ability of the brown adipocyte to, to induce leak and waste energy? <clears throat> so this is the core of our hypothesis. We say, architecture might influence energy expenditure. So now, let the brown adipocyte try to fragment, and, and increase energy expenditure under a condition where we prevent it now for fragmentation, we need to reduce uh, 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 um, energy expenditure. And these are the two experiments. 
First, we inhibited fission using DRP1 domina negative. So we overexpress a form of DRP1 that prevents fragmentation. Indeed, we see, we, see, we see no fragmentation under this condition because we prevent it. And we see a decrease in energy expenditure. So this is the oxygen consumption rate. It has fallen down. So fragmentation was essential for the brown adipocyte to do energy expenditure. Now, could we, could we do the opposite? Because that would be the more interesting. So can I, can I uh, um, eat more if I, if I fragment? This is my way of thinking. Um, so, so, so the question is, can, can we inhibit fusion and cause fragmentation? Would it increase energy expenditure? Indeed, this is the case. We see increased energy uh, expenditure. So it is supporting, uh, it is supporting our, our hypothesis. And basically what we are saying is that fragmentation collaborates with the lipolysis to bring upon energy expenditure. So this is the idea. The norepinephrine-induced lipolysis and cause uncoupling by activation of, of UCP1, but by the norepinephrine cause also a switch toward fragmented mitochondrial network that collaborates with the fatty acid to, to, to cause uncoupling. So it enhances the, the ability of the fatty acid to do uncoupling. Or in other, other ways, it sensitizes the bronodipocyte to the fatty acids that are there to do, to do uncoupling. So, so and, and, and that, that brought about this experiment. I'm showing you two examples of it. One, uh, with, with pretty low concentration of fatty acid, this is a ratio of 2 to A with BSA, which is, which is uh, the physiological, physiological ratio, with 0.1 millimolar uh, palmitate, which is pretty low concentration of fatty acid. It is far from being an optimal concentration to activate uh, UCP1 in bronodipocyte. But when we do that, if we compare, this is the norepinephrine. Uh, see, there was, it was moving here on the side. So this one is norepinephrine over here. This is the energy expenditure you get with norepinephrine. This is the energy expenditure you get just with fat. So norepinephrine without norepinephrine, right? Just, just fat, so there is no fragmentation. But if we force fragmentation by removing mitochondrial 2, we do not provide norepinephrine, no adrenergic stimulation. We just provide fat. You can see it bringing up over here. So that what, what it tells us is that if, if we found, would find a way to fragment mitochondria, we could, we could probably get some energy expenditure, enhanced energy expenditure, from the fatty acid that the brown deposite is already exposed to. And, and this one is with all it. So this one is a 4 to 1 ratio. And you can see the lower and lower concentration of fatty acid. Uh, indeed, it, it, the lower concentration also reduces energy expenditure, but the mitophysin 2 knockdown always have higher energy expenditure. And in this concentration, the 0.2 millimolar, there is a big difference. The uh, mitophysin 2 knockdown removes uh, the ability to do energy uh, expenditure. So what I, I've shown you is that, indeed, we, if, we, if we, uh, we found a system that does this switch very fast, and we found that this switch from high efficiency to low efficiency is, is, and is facilitated by uh, mitochondrial fragmentation. And, and this is a, a summary of what I, I was telling you today. And this is that um, what we see is we see an axis of quality control. This is the mitochondrial fusion and fission axis with the autophagy. 
but this axis is interfered by, by another axis, which is bioenergetic adaptation. Sometimes this cycle and this axis is being deviated and drawn into another function of mitochondrial dynamics, which is to do bioenergetic adaptation by, by changing its architecture to, to, uh, um, to create low energy efficiency, high energy expenditure, and, and accommodate to the excess nutrient environment. And the opposite is under starvation. Um, so, so what we see here is basically that the mitochondrial dynamics put, uh, uh, create a situation of maybe a conflict of interest of mitochondria. Do you want to adapt to the bioenergetic situation, like excess nutrient environment, or do you want to do more quality control? And it's not surprising that, that nature has put it in a conflict of interest, which is something that our university likes to talk a lot about. Um, so it's not, it's not surprising because we know that nature made a, a, a preference to do more quality control when you have less nutrient and live longer, and to do less quality control and live shorter when you have lots of nutrient. So you, you, the, the less nutrient that, are, that is available, nature preferred that you will survive longer. So this is the, the, the calorie restriction uh, effect. Um, so, so I think uh, uh, this, is, uh, this is the last slide. This is, this is uh, my summary. Uh, I also want to thank the people that did the work, and I'll start with, uh, with Kyle Trudeau, that did the work on the timer, and he prepared this, uh, this interesting idea for the, to the timer protein. So this is Kyle, and uh, this is uh, uh, our collaborator and people in the lab, so Lindsay Stiles, Kiana Medaviani, Sam Sereda, and Mark Liesa were working on the brown adipocytes, and uh, Jakob Wickstrom, uh, Anthony, and Kyle with the beta cell, in Boston University, we have very good collaborator Barbara Corky and Susan Fried. Um, in the IRB in Barcelona, Antonio Zorzano, Roberto Gottlieb with the timer, uh, and Jan Edegard, Barbara Cannon with the brown adipocyte, and Saverio Sinti uh, uh, from Italy also with the brown adipocyte. Well, thank you very much. Can you offer a simple, a simple explanation of why the morphology of mitochondria can, uh, can control energy production efficiency? Ah, that's a too good of a question. Um, so, um, we still don't have sufficient data to, 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 to make a statement about it. But we do know that this is related to the access of fatty acid to mitochondria. And fatty acid indeed, uh, especially in the, in the beta cells, in fuel, uh, fatty acid also uncoupled. So, so it is related to the flux of fatty acid toward, toward mitochondria. And it is uh, probably related to uh, ER interaction uh, with mitochondria. That's, that's uh, all that we, we know so far. Um, this is a, a very interesting, complicated uh, uh, thing to work on, uh, and, uh, and I hope that you'll be our collaborators. <laughs> uh,